Arrival Time, 1. The music of the spheres, the rap of music and mathematics and astronomy, can also mean that when the music plays, we wish upon the stars. Going into the Pastorale, his sixth symphony, Beethoven took along Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Reveries of the Solitary Walker. A run of works of romantic program music followed the stroll through the countryside. In 1940, the Pastorale entered Walt Disney's Fantasia, a title that also designates a form of musical composition that harnesses improvisation. Beethoven, who composed in the form, was, according to legend, better even than Mozart at improvisation on the piano, the performance called in German Fantasieren. In order that such legends might also be mapped, machines like pianographs, melographs, or Fantasiermaschinen were designed to transcribe an improvised performance into a repeatable score. In a 1956 Disney comic book made in West Germany, the local engineer Dusentrieb invites the Duck family to try out his newly invented Fantasiermaschine, and Donald promptly takes his nephews along on a fantasy trip to Jupiter. In early fragments, Walter Benjamin formulated and reformulated a brief theory of color that was specific to fantasy that of German Romanticism, to be sure, but which already indicated the predilection he would realize in his outright appreciation of Disney's art of animation. The rainbow is a purely childlike image. The color is the medium of changes and not symptom. Like in the rainbow and the Laterna Magica too, the color is completely contour. What is typical of fantasy, in contradistinction to the fantastic, is, however, an intrinsic Entstaltung, D or unformation. This unforming tendency upends the sense of an ending in fantasy, which never leads into death, but rather renders the decline it summons eternal by an endless relay of transitions. Fantasy coloration draws on the phosphorescent scintillating spectrum of decay and the violet of violence. In On Fairy Stories, J.R.R. Tolkien argued that since there is no true end to any fairy tale, the focus instead is upon the good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn. Tolkien hoped to lead his new or renewed genre out of the children's section in the bookstore to the grown-up stacks. The peculiar quality of the joy in successful fantasy, Tolkien writes, is not only a consolation for the sorrow of this world, but a satisfaction and an answer to that question, is it true? The answer is a resounding yes if you can follow the joy into acceptance of the gospel truth of fantasy. The work of fantasy, the work in fantasy, pushes back the proper ending to which the work defers. The import of there being one fantasy that is true, in which the happy end is the death of death, motivates the genre to vouchsafe that Christianity isn't just another fairy story. It is the joy of wish fulfillment that prefigures the Gloria at the fantasy work's turn, the catastrophe. 
What is essential to the genre Tolkien christened fantasy, then, is the power of making immediately effective by the will the visions of fantasy. What he adds next shows that we are in the environs of the daydream or waking wish fantasy. Not all are beautiful or even wholesome, not at any rate the fantasies of fallen man. Fallen man is, of course, the teenager, the pioneer of private fantasying. In The Poet and Daydreaming, Freud argued that unlike child's play, which is out in the open because it pursues one acceptable wish, the wish to be big, as in grown up, fantasying, beginning in adolescence, is at once one of our most intimate possessions because it flexes omnipotence, our right to narcissism, so basic to psychic reality, and a hideout we would be ashamed to share. As a rule, the daydreamer would rather confess his misdeeds than tell anyone his fantasies. It was for this reason that prior to the publication of The Talking Cure, the daydreamer believed he was the only person who invents such fantasies. We needed a poet without knowing it. In Tolkien's account, the teen takes the fall for staining the elves with his own stain. One strain of the stain is the aging of the cute. In a steady, fallen state, the adolescent just grows older, losing the bloom of promise, gaining on an adaptation to his antisocial tendencies. There remains, however, the deeper wish to escape from this grown-up adjustment to a flat line of fallen fantasies. Tolkien draws the horizon line of science fiction across the space and pace of this fallen adaptation. Why should we not escape from the Morlockian horror of factories? Tolkien dismisses the prop of a time machine as lessening the impact of Wells's tale, which he credits overall with working an enchantment in which magic or machine is not an end itself. By this praise for the fantasy arc in a science fiction story, Tolkien must admit that the borders of the fairy story are inevitably dubious. Around the time of the composition of The Hobbit, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis exchanged their views on the shortcomings of science fiction and how they might remedy them. Tolkien would write a time travel tale and Lewis a fable set in outer space thus recovering between them the two trajectories of Wells' entry upon the genre he introduced to a wider public. Unable to carry out his end of their mission, Tolkien deputized Lewis as their fantasy author on rival turf, but did write on fairy stories, which was the manifesto of the contest Lewis alone waged in fiction. When Freud explores fantasying as the everyday model for the aspirations and resolutions of Dichtung, he argues that the fantasy's circumvention of present tension cannot elide its triggering in real time, its history. The indelible date mark stamped upon the trigger-unhappy moment in the bypassed present openly lies waiting for historicization, the backfire of fantasy, its mortal recoil. The fantasy genre, therefore, is historicization waiting to happen, and its symbolic aspirations shall be overtaken by allegory. The expiration date of fantasy in history gives a rest to the speed denial within the once and future and provides the point of reentry of science fiction. 
to historicize the ascendancy of the fantasy genre, we keep returning to the borderlands it opened up in its contest with science fiction. Two, to emphasize that the development going into and through American science fiction commenced only very recently, Gotthard Günther turns up a contrast with Immanuel Kant's assessment in his pre-critical study, Theory of the Heavens, that possible dwellers on the outer planets are more perfect creations. Should the immortal soul remain forever attached to this point in space, to our earth for the whole infinity of its future duration, which is not interrupted by the grave itself, but only changed. Who knows whether it is not intended to get to know at close quarters those distant spheres of the solar system. At this juncture of its deployment by Günther, Kant's theory of the heavens exemplifies the European cosmos that American science fiction must leave behind. And yet Gunther himself brings up the arrears in this dismissal when he elaborates the importance of the European rehearsals going into the new metaphysics of science fiction. In underscoring the limitation of analogical extension of human existence to alien life forms fits the other limitation retrofitting the universe to our solar system, Gunther awards Kurt Laswitz the distinction of reaching as far as the moons of Neptune. Alongside Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, Lesfitz was a founding author of science fiction in Europe. Of course, his range of forecast still didn't go further than the solar system. Indeed, in Lesfitz's On Two Planets, the Martians still arrive like returning ancestors to make the Germans better Kantians and thus their representatives on Earth. Gunther writes that in his reflections on the outer planets, Kant is still projecting the alien in analogy with human life still. Yes, Kant's view of outer space bears the date stamp of the Enlightenment. Beginning in the Enlightenment and culminating in Daniel Paul Schreber's delusion of tested souls, the afterlife came to be secularized and syndicated in German letters as continued existence on foreign planets which afforded more than just one lifetime's worth of education. Is that why lifetime is relative in science fiction, whether by some kind of time paradox or the advancements in medical science, the protagonists tend to attain biblical ages? Where death seems to hold no dominion, it may have already happened. Ditat Savicki underscores that it was an innovation of the Enlightenment to view the Christian afterlife as the at once secularized and personalized reunion with loved ones. Werther's outbursts to Charlotte about loving the dead and reuniting with them beyond the grave belong to this changed relationship to the afterlife. It followed that our dead went to the outer planets to pursue their perfectibility, the striving on which the highest value was placed. Kant's most important imperfect duty, and which fell short in one lifespan. The preamble to modern spiritualism science fiction of the afterlife saw the dead perfecting themselves beyond the limitation of lifetime. Although the cultural A-list doesn't take the direct hit, Savicki finds the tendency confirmed in popular works of the day, like El Pizan, or On My Duration in Death. 
Published in 1795, it is the ostensible document by one returned from the grave, reflecting on the circumstances of his continued existence. Critical of the conditions obtaining on earth, the author cannot imagine mankind's perfectibility in the light of the sun. It follows that the divine providence of reason sees to it that we are transferred after death to another star system. And he is sure that his own transplanted father is citizen of this divine realm. By an illumination of influence chosen from column B, the setting of the conclusion of Goethe's Faust II in an academy of striving in reverse can be seen to inherit the Enlightenment program of perfectibility in which our dead are enrolled. Once the impact of the first era of discovery and colonization of a new world hit home, the dead could be sent on ahead to colonize inner outer space. Instead of entering upon the conceit of continuing education, Kant speculates the development of our soulmates on other planets in the light of the sun illuminates a scale of spiritual progress according to which earthlings occupy the middle position. Grunther opened his 1952 edited collection of American science fiction stories translated into German with Desertion by Clifford D. Simak. What Kant tries to get around through the balancing act of pros and cons remains for Simak motivation enough for deserting one's own species. And Tolkien's unique concession to the date mark of his composition of On Fairy Stories and The Lord of the Rings, he rescues the escape and escapism by transfer to the political situation, departure from the misery of the Führers or any other Reich. He also closes ranks with the war effort and draws the line between escape and desertion. The concession to this revalorization of escape, which he wrings from stories of science fiction, the most escapist form of all literature, draws a line in the and of the bookstore category, fantasy and science fiction. The prep work for a new genre, that of a new mythic tale or fairy story, takes apart old standards, which Gunther checks off with each story from the collection he introduces. Man as the high point of spiritual life, the metaphysical character of the starry heavens, the inviolability of the soul, the question of the absolute priority of either theoretical reason or pure will, our understanding of the nature of time, and finally, the relationship of thought to reality. In Simak's desertion, humans are shown to be the primitives of the universe. From the vantage point of our future in outer space, a terrestrial concept of man cannot be exported. Merger with spiritual life forms more intense and advanced than our species prompts the wish to desert from mankind. It is the categorical duty of consciousness to realize in itself the highest form of experience of which it is capable, seen from the perspective of the Neanderthal, Caesar and Beethoven are already deserters. Writing from within the biographical precincts of Goethe's Werther, Johann Georg Schlosser composed the dialogue on the transmigration of souls. Through transmigration, the inner man, 
not separable, however, from the aggregate of physical organs and mental faculties, goes to the school of countless lives or incarnations, but without the burden of remembering former lives or a greater, all-subsuming personality. The influence of experience is more important than its recollection. As the spirit becomes more and more refined, no memory is needed. He sees in every object the whole succession of his coming and going determination. At the end of eons of transmigration, when all the incarnations are together again, the pursuit of one's own perfectibility can be attained. The schooling takes place in earthly existence. But then through the closing Indian parable, the exponent of transmigration instructs his interlocutor that there are two exits from the recycling, from the ongoing afterlife brought down to earth. A divinity in the office of the Creator evaluates the degree of refinement a soul attains after 30,000 years. If there has been no improvement worth mentioning, the soul is deleted, while the appreciably refined soul is transplanted to another planet for ultimate improvement. Transmigration was the method of schooling and cleansing adopted for starting over. Man, the depositing of spirit and animal life, flunked both paradise and the world of work. The malignancy upon the spirit had to be excised, but the Father Creator didn't want to give up on human being once and for all. And so he opened the school of transmigration with postgraduate programming in outer space. It takes that much time to experience fully what's good and evil, to the point of recognizing the durability of the good. 3. The prospect of a planetary going on interstellar civilization folding out of the afterlife as science fiction counts a 2016 arrival. The movie that opens with 12 alien spaceships landing at divergent points across the globe to bestow a life-changing gift in two parts. First, the planet must unite to coordinate and receive the contact staggered across 12 installments. The second bestowal unfolds in the course of learning their written language. Getting to know the alien language means getting to know all about time, which doesn't exist in the terms of an inexorable declension. Contact between species cannot be an exchange out in the open. Compact but elaborate stations are fashioned for the separate environments of both parties to the exchange, with a communicating screen between. By the work of translation and transcription, in which all the parties are engaged, these stations comprise a veritable fantasia machina. Our contact person on screen, Louise Banks, belongs to the SF retinue of grief-stuck protagonists who roll back their blind spots to see better what the future brings. Her loss lies in the future, but its stations are shown at the start of the film. She is the narrator of this preamble, the container in which her cry to her doomed daughter resounds, come back to me. Then the film restarts around the arrival of the spaceships. Banks, a professor of linguistics, is one of the experts soon summoned to help make contact with the ship that landed in the U.S. 
While she decodes the characters of the alien script with the assistance of a physicist, her future husband, she flashes on fragments of the traumatic souvenirs belonging to the future, which augment her recognition of the writing on the screen. The first translations of the alien script announce that there's no time like the present for a conflagration among the superpowers, which Banks alone realizes is a misreading of the message that time doesn't exist. When it looks like China is leading the way toward a battening down of the stations of alien visitation to contain the threat from outer space, a retrenchment of national interests that in blocking the bestowal of the gift could lead to war, she calls the Chinese commander and pronounces his wife's dying words to him. While no tense is given, and intuitively the words belong to the recent past, the logic of the film and of the traditions coursing through it also suggests that Banks initiates the commander into clairvoyance, opening time by his recognition of the future parting words of his wife. Either way, what follows is that the commander immediately understands what no time means and guides the world in the other direction into unifying communication of contact. In Ted Chiang's 1998 Story of Your Life, which the film adapts, no progress in their exchange is made until the aliens recognize one principle the scientists put forward, the Fermat principle of light refraction, which was first discovered in the 17th century. Because even our written languages refer to speech, we are committed to a sequential form of understanding, which in turn led to the centrality of causality in science. Thus, when Banks wonders why the breakthrough principle doesn't sound like a law of physics, her colleague explains. You're used to thinking of refraction in terms of cause and effect. Reaching the water's surface is the cause, and the change in direction is the effect. But Fermat's principle sounds weird because it describes light's behavior in goal-oriented terms. It sounds like a commandment to a light beam. Thou shalt minimize or maximize the time taken to reach thy destination. Alongside the volition basic to human consciousness, which in the celebrated form of free will forgoes knowing the future, there is a sense of obligation arising with knowledge of the future, a sense of urgency to act just as you knew you would. One big change from page to screen lies in the valorization of memory. In the story, when Banks looks across the epic to be remembered and lived, she only occasionally achieves the alien view of simultaneity. She likens the glimpse of past and future all at once to a half-century-long ember burning outside time. Otherwise, she remembers, but without the one-way prospect of real combustion. My consciousness crawls along as it did before, a glowing sliver crawling forward in time, the difference being that the ash of memory lies ahead as well as behind. The change in her view of time and memory, which comes through learning the alien written language, is that she sees all that transpires within her allotted lifetime, the half-century-long ember burning outside time. After I learned Heptabod B, 
New memories fell into place like gigantic blocks, amounting to a period of five decades. While the aliens, Banks suggests, think big, making their actions coincide with history's events and their motives with history's purposes, in effect acting to create the future to enact chronology, their lesson plan for their prized human pupil fits the secular schedule of mourning. In the movie, it is by the import of memory attuned to the simultaneity of arrival and return that the affective turbulence attending the deadlines in one's lifetime shall be overcome. This is a strategy we can identify by its enlightenment date mark. The benign interjection of haunting secularizes and personalizes heaven, which comes down to earth via outer space. In Chang's story, the alien script changes the way Banks thinks, rather than follow out the train of thought, which she associates with an inner voice speaking silently aloud. She can, in certain trance moments, see writing with her mind's eye, sprouting like frost on a window pane. But Banks's initiation isn't complete, only fleeting, leaving her to wade in the surf of the necessity of events. The first marriage doesn't last, but not because she tests him with the future. In fact, she vows that knowing the future means never letting the uninitiated know the writing on the wall. That the alien writing, which appears comparable in human systems to mathematical equations and notations for music and dance, cannot overcome the speed, the speech of thought, is brought home when Banks tests her partner on screen. After her solo exchange with the surviving alien, Banks in Arrival resolutely actualizes what is to come. Just the same, what makes for an ill fit in the movie is that she is unable to close ranks with her daughter's father in the face of her foreknowledge. She lets him in on their daughter's deadline, and he can't live with them for it. While in moments few and far between, she sees it all like a mandala, for the most part, Banks and Chang's story goes back and forth to revisit the situations in which the other was and is no more. She thus follows out a lesson plan for overcoming grief, like the operations of reality testing and the opening season of grief, according to Freud in Morning and Melancholia, that neutralizes and preserves the countdown between first and second deaths, between haunting and successful mourning. Four. In Reveries of the Solitary Walker, Rousseau reflects on the fantasying lost in transposition to his reflections on moral philosophy. As I tried to recall so many sweet reveries, I relived them instead of describing them, the memory of the state is enough to bring it back to life. If we completely cease to experience it, we should soon lose all knowledge of it. Rousseau follows the imperative of philosophical ethics to bring fantasy to the clearing of wishing well. If I had possessed the ring of Gyges, it would have made me independent of men and made them dependent on me. I have often wondered in my castles in the air how I should have used this ring, for in such a case power must indeed be closely followed by temptation to abuse it. 
able to satisfy my desires, capable of doing anything without being deceived by anyone, what might I have desired at all consistently? But just when you thought this was the invisible man's rhetorical question leading him to crime, Rousseau does an about-face. The sight of general happiness is the only thing that could have given me lasting satisfaction. When Rousseau composed his reveries of the solitary walker in the last two years of his life, he saw himself exiled from a hostile society. He chooses isolation to forego external and internal contact with his enemies. In fact, he owes to them his discovery of a new resource for reflection and writing. Preliminary to his walking cure unto reverie, Rousseau suffered a street accident which shook loose the souvenirs of other bloody mishaps in youth and childhood that he confronts in the course of the book. This accident, however, exposed him to the rumor of his demise, setting the stage for this examination of the expansion and intensification of his inner moral life following upon his alienation and isolation, Rousseau projects his arrival on another planet. I live here, as in some strange planet, onto which I have fallen from the one I knew. The transfer to the afterlife is Rousseau's allegory of making over fantasying as the publishable record of his reveries. Set free from all the earthly passions that are born of the tumult of social life, my soul would often soar out of this atmosphere and would converse before its time with the celestial spirits. But visits there before his appointed time of departure are not enough to establish the continuity shot that moral philosophy alone can afford, the before and after of a truly continued existence. And so Rousseau turns his fantasying into a school of wishing well to amass for his soul the soul goods it can carry with it. Patience, kindness, resignation, integrity, and impartial justice are goods that we can take with us and that we can accumulate continually without fear that death itself can rob us of their value. The basic rule Rousseau applies in pursuit of a happiness morally secured for transport to the other side must rule out the majority fare of our second nature as daydreamers. Whatever our situation, it is only self-love that can make us constantly unhappy. It is getting late in the creative unconscious, Hans Sachs's psychoesthetic treatise, which expands upon Freud's The Poet and Daydreaming. When we learn that music is the art form which comes nearest, to being the pure embodiment of beauty. Up to this point, Sachs drew on an eclectic spread of linguistic and visual works from ancient Greek sculpture and drama to Mickey Mouse cartoons to test Freud's thesis that art rescues the omnipotence of thoughts from the off-limits underworld of daydreaming but must never look back at, never reveal its source. Wish-fulfillment fantasies are embarrassingly, boringly narcissistic, asocial, even antisocial, and certainly inartistic. The psychoanalytic poetics of the daydream identifies Dichtung as the social relation 
one for omnipotence from the privacy and privation of our second nature. If the spoils of psychic reality could be divided up between waking living and the night dream, then we wouldn't need art. There is art because we are always going off alone with fantasying, prematurely flashing on a figment without realization or endurance. There is art, then, to vouchsafe the evolution of the social relation out of the tight spot of wishing. If the first work of Dichtung was the heroic saga, Freud wagers, then the premier hero, also for the audience, would have been the poet who delivered omnipotence by making it public access. In exchange for the artist's renunciation of the drippy narcissism of his wish-fantasying, it is beauty, sex underscores, that is the prize, but which in accordance with secondary narcissism is a goal of perfectibility that's always just out of reach. The beauty of sex's argument is that art leads in the eyes or ears of the receiver to an experience of an emotional situation which has been his potentially, but which he never can hope to attain in such unmixed purity and fullness. The musical composition is a kind of dream catcher with beauty as bait. It isn't any old oceanic feeling from prehistory, however, but a specific situation which bears the time stamp not so much of fantasy incentive as of lapse in the timing of affective response. Rousseau, we saw, associated the goods of morals with an extraterrestrial perspective on the afterlife. In his fourth walk, he addresses lying, the defective cornerstone of the moral philosophy in which he trusts. There is the lie to which he confessed in print ten years earlier. Rousseau claims that the ribbon episode is his method for never again telling a lie. But when he scours the impress of his conversations, he finds a mess of minor league lying. The profound impression made on me by the memory of poor Marion may be capable of preventing any lies which might harm other people, but not the lies which can help me to save face when I alone am involved. Isn't only that which is useful true, and therefore a grievous lie, if withheld? But there is no excuse in morals if lies happen because of out of timing. A conversation can run on ahead of Rousseau, such that he is forced to speak before thinking, or if taken by surprise, shame and his basic timidity can impel him to tell lies independently of his will. The utilitarian adjustments to the moral judgment of lying might make room for fiction. But more importantly, it is the sliding scale of lying which is unstoppable by the time-saving that the run of time and language requires, that extends the scenario of out-of-timing to fiction. What lags behind in sadness is the missed opportunity to tell the truth of what you felt in the emotional situation. The demand for such completion is inexhaustible. Benign lying or fiction gives to grievous lying a topography in which reparation and integration are possible. The beauty of Dichtung, Freud's summary term for art, is that it motivates us to feel fiction as though we could thus catch up with the lapse. Affection deficit is suffered over the time of our own response. The specific emotional situation sex identifies 
is the place for the absence of what we wanted to say or show. Affect isn't repressed, but the out-of-timing of its response haunts us. It is the import of mourning to catch up with emotions unsaid undead and the lost situations of their stirring. The recall of the second death in the future, which is Banks's gift in arrival, elides what it would imply at closer range, the static of mixed feelings, the death wish forecast. While the orbit of arrival time replaces mourning and commemoration with acceptance, even affirmation, just when Banks thinks she can get her future husband to join her in saying yes to everything that happens and happened and affirming that it is and was as he wished it, his main concern turns out to be that he has been delinquent and delayed in giving full attention to his feelings in the moment. If the loss in mourning is not only embodied but expressed, then the words he could have should have spoken signal the combo of lag and jump cut linking daydreaming to incomplete mourning. What happens when mourning isn't exclusively tied to the object of loss or to the defile of memory in which the object can again be lost? What if the traffic of thoughts and wishes irreversibly carries forward an affect that wasn't imparted to the person you cared for and lost? If daydreaming is in large measure training for big ideas and big feelings, how else could the carrot and stick of beauty in Sucks's argument transfer our second nature to art and the social relation? Then the burden of preparedness lies heavy on our ability to express in good timing what we think and feel. The basic belatedness and prematurity of adolescent fantasying attend then even the most cosmic attempt to reverse loss. Resonating within our second nature as daydreamers, the scheduling conflict of affects unsaid undead in the lost situations of their stirring remains for the time being the unalterable flaw in the superhuman appointment with mourning. <laughs>